Let us begin our first Advent sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we look to the incarnation of your Son, we pray that you bless our sermon so that we may see our unbelief and be strengthened by your word. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's 450, nearly 500 years after the last prophecy of the Old Testament, that long of silence, nothing from God. Empires had risen and fallen. Nearly 500 years later, a priest who was getting near retirement age went into the temple to do one of his duties. And can you just imagine the terror? Wham! There's a holy angel of God. And the silence was broken. The message was, you will give birth to a son. But as we'll see in our text, he had a hard time believing. He was a faithful man. During these midweek Advent services, we will ask the question, to whom does Jesus come? And today we see he came to a man who was a believer but doubted. So we'll see he comes with proof to those who doubt. Our text for our sermon is Luke chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Zacharias said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? Because I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you in order to tell you this good news. Now listen, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things happen, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at the proper time. This is the gospel history of our Lord. So now you've just heard God came with the wonderful message. You're going to be the father of the forerunner, the Elijah, the one who prepares the path for the Lord. And Zechariah's response, uh, how can I believe this? But you see, brothers and sisters in Christ, God uses what is incredulous to show his saving power. Even believers who know that Jesus is the Savior, even the most devout of believers, in fact, even Abraham, who's considered the father of believers, have their times when they go, but how can you do that? Why, that would have to take a miracle. In our first lesson in Genesis chapter 18, we heard Sarah laugh. Sarah and Abraham were in their 90s when they finally gave birth to their son, Isaac. Well, many years earlier, they'd come to the conclusion that, that Sarah couldn't give birth to the Savior. She was past what we call today menopause, right? So she came up with an earthly plan. Sleep with Hagar, my maidservant. And they had a son doing that. God says, Ishmael is not the one to whom the Savior would come. He will be from your loins and from Sarah's womb. Years earlier than that, Abraham, the father of believers, he struggled. How can I have a son? My wife's past menopause. He told the Lord, Eleazar of Damascus, my servant is going to have to inherit everything. God said, no, that's not the way it's going to be. Why did God make the birth so incredulous? And in fact, when you think about it, it hung by a thread. God calls Abraham, tells him, you're going to be the father of many nations, and it's all going to depend on one child. Not, you have 12 sons through whom the nation will grow. But it all came down to Abraham having one child. How scary. But brothers and sisters in Christ, God uses what is incredulous, 
What is hard to believe, what defies the natural principles God created and uses to govern this world, he does that to show us his saving power. For he had promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman, and the Hebrew word for seed is what men supply in the baby ingredients, not what women do. He'd promised something big. That's for next week's sermon text. Going back to our text, though. God, in preparing the forerunner for the Lord, He is going to be a miracle, a lesser miracle, so that people can swallow down the virgin birth. Jesus would have to be born of a virgin so that they wouldn't inherit the sinful nature. He's true God and true man. And so, we're told in Luke chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, about Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous decrees of the Lord. They did not have a child because Elizabeth was unable to bear children, and they were well along in years. These weren't people who were unbelievers that God chose to give birth to the forerunner of the Lord. These were devout Christians. Of course, they were devout Jews. Today we call them Christians, right? So how did Zechariah have such a hard time? He missed it. God had chosen not only his wife had been barren her whole life. Now she's past menopause for them to give birth to the forerunner to say this is impossible. But with the Lord, all things are possible. And an even bigger miracle is going to be announced in six months. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, God used what's incredulous to show his saving power. What about us today? We look back, we read the Bible, and we go, wow, God did so many miracles through Moses or Elijah and Elisha. Look at the miracles Jesus himself did and the miracles he allowed the apostles to do. It seems like all of that is just a bunch of wives' tales because we don't see miracles today. We overlook the fact that, especially in the time of Jesus and the apostles, those miracles were meant to confirm the message they had. You and I have the message in its entirety. Even Martin Luther, who labored to put the Bible in the common language of the common man, would be jealous of our day because while people could buy a Bible thanks to Martin Luther in the printing press, it cost a year's wages. You didn't go to the bank and get a loan for a Bible in those days. They would envy you and I that you can go into a hotel and steal one for... No, 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 okay, you can, you can get one for free from Christian societies. You can buy them at large department stores for $2. I'll bet you everybody here in this church owns at least two different translations of the Bible in their home. English translations. Wow. How they would be jealous. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I might look with miracles and say, Well, God doesn't do that today. But we forget the miracle that we have His Word. That God inspired men to write it so we don't need the extra evidence because we can just look to His Word. But brothers and sisters in Christ, because the miracles aren't prevalent the way they were when the apostles were going out with the Word, it's easy to overlook the Lord and look for natural solutions. We get bad snowstorms. We get diseases. We worry about losing our jobs. We worry, we worry, and we look to the natural solutions, don't we? But brothers and sisters in Christ, how often do we overlook the word? Do we forget to turn to it? And here, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? But tells us that the Father provides for us. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, we too at times are guilty of doubting, even though we believe Jesus is true God who became true man and became a savior. And so we rejoice. To whom does Jesus come? Whether it's Zechariah or whether it's you and I, he comes with proof. His word reassures us when we doubt. And God uses what's incredulous to show his saving power. Now, after Zechariah asks his question, it's basically, what kind of a sign are you going to give me to bank on this? You would think that the angel Gabriel would say, duh, an angel standing in front of you. But he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and will speak to you in order to tell you this good news. Hello, an angel standing before you. What more proof do you need? But when he says that, I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you. When you're a child, did you ever play telephone where you get your friends into a line and you whisper something into somebody's ear and gets around and by the time it comes back to you, it's a totally different message or it's pretty garbled? Gabriel says, uh-uh, there's no room for mistake. I'm an angel. I'm holy. I stand before God. I could not stand before God if I were not holy. And because I am holy, I am not going to be screwing up this message. And because I stand before God, God gave me the message and I brought it straight to you. There's no telephone being played here. There's no reason to think this message got screwed up. I got good news for you. But you want a sign, he says in verse 20. Now listen, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things happen, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at the proper time. Oh, he got a miracle. You're not going to be able to talk until the child's born. He wanted a sign and he got it. But do you notice that the sign God gave him through the proclamation of the angel Gabriel was a discipline? Now I want to be careful here. The punishment for sins is an eternity of being abandoned by God in hell. Jesus bore that for us. Discipline is God trying to correct our, our behavior so that we don't fall into further sin. Yes, he allowed Zechariah a sign, but a sign that would discipline him so that Zechariah would learn to trust in the Lord and the word of the Lord. How often does God do that with us? How often have you suffered anxiety over things that are beyond your control? It's easy for us to overlook, okay, Lord, this is the paycheck you've given me for my job. This is the home and this is the food you've blessed me with, the labor. And so being a good steward, I've done the best I can, but things are getting scary. Lord, I've tried to be healthy, but I've got this, this problem, this health problem. Oftentimes God will let us suffer our anxiety. He'll say, yeah, fine. I've told you I'll provide for you. I've expected you to be a good steward with what I've entrusted to you. But most of the time when we have anxiety about things, it's stressing out about things that God has not entrusted to us. So God will say, yeah, I'll let you sweat bullets for a while. And how often is it the things that we stress about, God resolves them right underneath our nose and we go, ah, why did I let myself worry about that one? Yes, God comes with discipline for our unbelief and he does that so that we don't embrace it and forget that he is God. How often can we say we have come with aloofness to the Lord? Or how often do we not come to the Lord in aloofness? Yes, I'm talking to the choir, obviously, when you preach in a church. But we know people, and maybe you have been like me and have been one of those people. I can tell you, in my own life, I fell into this. God says, fine, if you think you're too busy to come to me, I'll, I'll let you be busy. I'll let you be busy for a while as my discipline to you. 
And then you'll figure out when you make time for me, you'll figure out that I provide for you and you don't need to be so busy. How often, brothers and sisters in Christ, do we run in folly to embrace our own sin? We all have pet sins that we especially and uniquely struggle with. And there are times God says, you know what? I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of that sin for a short time because I don't want you to end up embracing it and squeezing my Holy Spirit out of your heart. Discipline from the Lord is a wonderful act of His grace because He doesn't want us falling out of belief. So we see God disciplines our unbelief to protect us from it. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, Nearly 500 years of silence is broken as an angel appears to Zechariah, who is a devout Jew, an outstanding believer. And yet he couldn't believe that God would do this miracle for him and his wife. So we see to whom does Jesus come? He comes with proof to those who doubt. God uses what is incredulous, what is unbelievable to show his saving power. And God disciplines our unbelief to protect us from it. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.